All right, first time. Uh, okay, so when Elijah asked me to do this today, he was explaining that cruciform concept, and I knew right away, you remember, on the phone, I was like, I got this idea, and you're like, what's the passage? And I'm like, it's kind of a, a concept. Uh, but I didn't know that it would fit so perfectly into how it's been leading up. The first week, Pastor Matt, he was talking about how we as God's people have been set apart in, by Christ's uh, sanctifying work, right? This work that has changed us, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and how that should affect what we believe, our posture toward the world, and our mission to the world. And he really focused in on what it means to be that set-apart, cruciform body. Then last week, uh, Pastor Keith was talking about how, uh, kind of taking it one step deeper, about how the, the death and burial of Christ puts our old selves, that kingdom of darkness we were talking about, that old life, to death, in a sense, right? And then we enter into this new thing, but it's with Christ. We were raised with Christ. And it's a concept that's kind of crazy because I'm thinking, okay, that happened 2,000 years ago, but somehow I died with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. Uh, and so Paul says, okay, we've died, but then Paul says, I die daily. So I was like, what is that? So Pastor Keith was talking about how like our zombie ex-husbands and ex-wives come to the house, you know, and we're like, get back in there, you know? And this concept of like, cutting off the dead arm that's keeping us trapped against the wall. You remember, if you were here last week, you get it. If you weren't, don't worry about it. Uh, what I wanted to do today from the beginning was to talk about investing in the life. So last week we were talking about the death and doing that death and constantly considering that. Today I want to talk about investing in the life. But before I do that, I need to set it up a little bit. I'm from California. I don't know if you can tell. Some people from the South can just tell right away. It's like, hmm, he's not from here. I've been here 11 plus years. I say y'all sometimes, and it works. Like, I can do it. I taught at Heinz Community College and said y'all all the time. Uh, but I am from California, and my parents were caught up in this movement called the Jesus Movement. I don't know if you've heard of the Jesus Movement, but if you haven't, there's a movie coming out in like three weeks called The Jesus Revolution. And this was what my parents were all caught up in in college. And they determined to raise us in like a Jesus revolution life. And let me just show you, this is my little home fellowship that I grew up in. It's kind of blurry, but that's my mom right there with the babushka on. That's my sister in front of her. I don't know where I am. And I've been searching for myself in this picture forever. So I, I might be lying, but... Anyway, and that's my dad too, right over there. And this is our group. And we were a home church, Jesus people group. This is all I knew growing up. I never had a pastor take us through a series. We never went through a book of the Bible. What we did was, you could call it almost like an anti-traditionalist group, which might sound wrong. We, were, we called ourselves non-denominational. We were anti-denominational. It was the Jesus people, right? We were all about, we need to get back to the Bible. So what's the Bible say to do? It says meet in homes. It doesn't say meet in some giant cathedral. We're not going to do that. So we were meeting in homes. So I grew up sitting on the carpet every church service, service. And, you know, we'd do our baptisms at the river. 
And there was this, I, there was a verse that said, you know, everyone come together and have something to contribute, something to share. So we were encouraged, be in the scriptures, be praying. If the Lord does something or says something, you say it in the group. And we had no end time. So we would meet like around one and then we would sing songs. Everybody had a guitar and we would go around and we had elders that would kind of like steer things if, if it was kind of getting off the rails, but there was no head pastor. There was no order of service. And so I grew up in this uh, environment where I was encouraged to seek the Lord. And I, I was reading all the time. I was praying. I went so far as to create my own little like gospel tracts. I still have some. My mom kept them because they were cute. They're not even folded right. And I'd go door to door and pass them out to my neighbors. I, I remember carrying a cardboard box of Bibles by myself. I was like eight, knocking on doors, you know, and like handing New International Version, right, to my neighbors. I was all in. And I'm saying this because I had an experience my senior year of high school that would seem to defy that background. And it was this. I'm sitting in my little home group, and my dad asked a question, pretty standard question. He's like, how can we practically be lights in the world? You know, probably 15 things pop up in your brain, but I was a senior in high school, and I'm thinking, you know, all these older people, like, this Christian young man's going to say this super profound thing. So I'm like sitting on it for a second. You know, I'm going to say the thing that nobody else can think of. And I remember I looked across the room and I saw this kid and he had a basketball on his lap. And this kid was a freak for the Sacramento Kings, which were awful. The Kings are the worst. They've only been good like this long in their whole franchise history. But this kid wouldn't shut up about the Kings. And I was glad we were in the church service so that I could like not hear something about the Kings. But I look at this kid and God basically downloads a concept into my brain. It was the first time this ever happened to me. And when I say this, I don't mean, I've heard God speak. I've, God has done things in my life a lot, for sure. But this download thing, it's a handful less in my life. This was the first time. I'm going to tell you about two of the times. But the first time, God downloaded a concept. And the concept, I could sum it up in one sentence, even though it would take me forever to just like, it took me forever to flesh it out completely. But it was this. God said, he's a light for the Sacramento Kings because he loves the Sacramento Kings. You're not a light for me because you don't love me. Sounds harsh, right? It kind of is harsh, but it didn't come in that way. What came into my brain was this concept that was, there's supposed to be in a Christian an energizer bunny called love that makes us do things, that makes us respond appropriately to things. And he's saying, that's not you. But I felt kind of encouraged because I thought, oh, I don't have to push the car around anymore because there's an engine inside. I just didn't know how to work it. I knew it was in there. I just didn't know how to, like, what's this key do? What's the, without gas, you can do nothing. You know, like this idea that there was a, a power or a motivational source that I wasn't using, that I could use. And so at first, I was encouraged by it. I used to think that when Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, that it was kind of like if my mom said, if you love me, you'll take out the trash. <laughs> like, a, like a guilt kind of thing, you know? Like Jesus, like, if you guys love me, you do what I say. No, literally, like it's a fact if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
and I wasn't keeping them. And if you're anything like me, you know, it's, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about, like, I love God and I struggle with sin. And Jesus is saying, no, it doesn't work like that. If you love your wife, you don't cheat on your wife. You just don't. Not if you really do. And it, it, it was hard for my brain. I needed him to say that to me. Because I remember in college when I'd tell people about this, because it was unresolved for a while, which is hard, by the way. I'll tell you how that worked out in a minute. But... Uh, when I would tell people that God said that to me, they'd say, no, he didn't. Of course you love God. You're going to a Christian school. Like you grew up in the church. Like you went door to door with Bibles. Like how could you love God more than that? And I'm like, well, he told me. You know, I was like, he said I didn't. I had to sit in that. It was hard. Uh, let me tell you how this is possible. Imagine instead, I mean, the, the way you normally, you know, like, you have a married couple right here. The way this normally works is you see each other. There's an attraction thing. You ask them out. You spend some time together. It becomes a little more than an attraction. You decide, I could do the rest of my life. I could do this for the rest of my life. And so you're, there's a process before you sign the paperwork and you're like, woo. But with Jesus, when I'm like five years old sitting with my mom and dad, it's kind of like there was this, there's this invisible person that wants a relationship with you. And 2,000 years ago, he did this awesome thing. So you don't have to go to hell. So here's the paperwork. And if you sign here, by the way, God's already pre-signed everything. If you sign here, you get the best insurances ever. Afterlife insurance, number one. Number two, backup health insurance, right? It might work. It probably will. And you get a book, a free book with a bunch of rules in it. Like God will have to do them. It's his book. And also, you know, you got this path, you got this community. It's free stuff. Sign here. You could see how like the insurance thing, you could have that in your head, the benefits of Christianity without the heart, without the love. That's possible, right? You could think that. You could get married for the benefits. You know, it's like get marrying somebody for the green card. You know, I'm going to marry somebody so I can be in America. We could do that with God. Second thing, imagine if I thought, oh, I'm a married person now. You know, like I wasn't married, now I'm a married person. And I think, oh, I read a book about being a married person. And this is what we do. We get up in the morning and we make the bed. And then we do the dishes, because that's what married people do. If you love your wife, you're going to do the dishes. Okay, I'll do the dishes. You know, you're going to dust. You're going to vacuum. You keep this house clean. Can you see that a marriage could, you could feel married and you're like, I love my wife. Why? Because I'm doing the dishes. You know, when people would ask me, How, how's your devotional life? How's your spiritual life? I'd be like, okay, I did my devos this morning. I prayed. I went to church on Sunday. Oh, I even did a Wednesday night thing. I'm good. I'm good with God. I don't, you know, and God's like, are you? Right? Like, because I'm feeling like I'm doing all the right things. I'm checking all the right boxes. And God's like, where's your heart? I didn't. I just didn't even think about it. I was being a married person without my real connection with my wife. God had to tell me that I was doing it wrong or else I would have assumed I was doing it right. By the way, I've never preached on this before. This, it touches a personal spot, and you'll see why a little more later. But this um, concept is really important for every Christian to really consider. Uh, some people do this naturally, by the way. I didn't. I did it unnaturally. Also, we could say all the right things without feeling the right things, right? We, when we worship, when we preach, we can be Christians in our mouths. We can be Christians in our actions. We can be Christians 
in our expectations and our heart not be close to the Lord. That's what he was telling me. Okay, now there's this concept in scripture that basically is the whole story. And I didn't know that what he was dealing with me was basically what he deals with all through the biblical story. So we know, hopefully, I'm, I'm assuming some of you know the basics of the biblical story, but you know, at the beginning of the Bible, uh, God creates this perfect thing and then everything kind of goes bad, goes wrong, right? And then there's the flood and then Tower of Babel happens and God's like, all right, I'm not gonna flood again, but we have to do something to stop this. So he chooses Abraham and he says, Your pe- I'm gonna make a nation out of you and that's gonna be my on the ground solution. One-on-one, my people and all the other people. And this is going to be what I'm going to do to stem the tide of depravity, darkness, death. And so this is what he does. And somehow Abraham's descendants end up slaves in Egypt, which seems counterintuitive. And then he's like, because I have this story I wanna do, brings them out of Egypt, takes them through the Red Sea, across the desert to Mount Sinai, and he joins with them in a covenant. Now listen to this from Ezekiel chapter 16, when God reflects on the covenant. Ezekiel chapter 16, you can hang there for a minute. He says, I saw that you were old enough for love, so I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness and declared my marriage vows. I made a covenant with you, says the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. It's interesting to think that God sees that event as kind of like a marriage ritual. You know, we think about God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, and we better get about doing that stuff. In a sense, yes. You know, there are other analogies. You know, God say, I'm a, I'm a father, you're my son. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm your God, you're my, I'm the king, you're my subjects. But he says in this one, that's the day you and I became husband and wife. Now, the reason why this is important is because this analogy plays out the strongest for the rest of Scripture. Um, what you'll find is that God, uh, they, they make this covenant, they have a few bumps early in marriage, then they settle into the land. So they kind of move into their new place, right? And then they settle there for a while and things get comfortable. And they start looking around, like, you know, you, you settle into your marriage and it gets, I don't want to say stale. That's going to sound really wrong, Lori's right there. Uh, it just settles And that's what happens when you read the biblical story. People are like, why does everybody else get a king and we don't? You know, like you start to look at your neighbors and think, what's working over there that's not working over here? Why 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 is this marriage happier than mine? You know, why is this happening? And so they start to uh, struggle. And eventually they go through this giant political catastrophe where they split into two separate nations. I didn't even, I read the Bible through as a kid like 10 times. I didn't realize that they split. It's like, you can miss it. It's like a chapter or two. And then all of a sudden you have Israel and Judah. And I always just thought it was the same, but it's not. It's two different nations. There's the Northern kingdom and the Southern kingdom. And what happens in the North is basically all bad for a long time. And they, at one point they make Baal, this foreign God, their national deity, right? They've like, they're literally married to Yahweh they don't realize this, but they're living with their next door neighbor, you know, and basically just like not home, not doing anything. So God eventually says this. This is also Ezekiel 16, 14 through 16. I dressed you in my splendor 
and perfected your beauty, says the sovereign Lord, but you thought your fame and beauty were your own. So you gave yourself as a prostitute to every man who came along. Your beauty was theirs for the asking. You used the lovely things I gave you to make shrines for idols where you played the prostitute. Unbelievable. How could such a thing ever happen? And you've probably heard the story of Hosea, right? God picks a prophet, which are basically his biological billboards, right? These are people that are like, you can't see me, but you can see Hosea, so watch him. And he's like, go marry a prostitute. And don't just marry a prostitute, love a prostitute. He does say, you will love her. You're going to have babies with her. And when she sneaks off at night to do her thing, you're going to go get her and bring her back home and stick her in your house. Because that's what I've been living with. For however many centuries God was living with it, that's how I feel. So it's bigger than an analogy, right? This is like God saying, you don't know how I feel when you do that stuff. It feels just like what Hosea is feeling. And so what happens eventually is here come the Assyrians and goes through all the Northern Kingdom and they're gone. It's like, uh, the Northern Kingdom was 10 of the 12 tribes. They're gone. That's the end until like the Samaritans show up way later and they're like kind of like half Assyrian and half Northern Kingdom people. And it's like, mm. like they're kind of in the family and kind of not. And it's bad and it's the end. It's a divorce. This is how God describes it. So now we move to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter three. And he's speaking to the Southern Kingdom at this point. And listen to how he describes them. Chapter three, verse six. Have you seen what fickle Israel has done? So that's the north. Like a wife who commits adultery, Israel has worshiped other gods on every hill and under every green tree. I thought after she's done all this, she'll return to me. She did not return. And her faithless sister Judah saw this. She saw that I divorced faithless Israel because of her adultery. But that treacherous sister Judah had no fear. And now she too has left me and given herself to prostitution. Israel treated it all so lightly, she thought nothing of committing adultery by worshiping idols made of wood and stone. So now the land has been polluted. But despite all this, her faithless sister Judah has never sincerely returned. She's only pretended to be sorry. And this is during that time when God was saying, I don't want your burnt offerings. You know, imagine if, if I am I, I'm out every night and I'm not spending time with Lori. In fact, I'm spending time with other women. And then I come home the next morning, I'm like, here's some flowers. You know, what do those flowers feel like? So God's like, I don't want your burnt offerings. If your heart's not right, stop the whole system. Don't sing a worship song. If you're not worshiping me during the week, just don't sing it. You don't have to sing it because the song's on, right? Like, Get the heart right. That's why sometimes we talk about get right before you come up and take communion. There's this idea of this is a real relationship. It's not some system. There's a person involved and God gets his feelings hurt, obviously, right? You're reading this and he's like, you're hurting my feelings with the burnt offerings. It kind of sounds wrong to think of God in these terms, but this is what he was doing with me as he's like, you're hurting my feelings. It sounds kind of wrong. We want God to transcend our kind of little feelings things. Are you listening? She's like, she's only pretended to be sorry. You know, <laughs> like, oh, that's kind of mean. Now, what does God do? He doesn't destroy the Southern kingdom. He's promised, I'm, I'm going to use these people. He sends them all to rehab. 
also known as the Babylonian exile. And they go to the Babylonian exile and they get in their scriptures and they're like, oh, we've been doing this wrong. We need to do it right. And guys like Ezra, Nehemiah, they come together and they're like, we're going to go back to Jerusalem and we're going to do it right. We're going to keep the law. We're done with idolatry. No more sleeping around. And so that's what they do. And they take it super seriously. How seriously? Uber seriously. To the point where Jesus shows up and he's like, you guys took this way too seriously. <laughs> right? Because it's like, you took the law and now you worship the law. Like, you, you, religion is your new favorite. I'm not your new favorite. Religion is your new favorite. And Jesus shows up. He's like, you don't know my father. If you knew my father, you'd know me. You'd love me. But you hate me. Why? Because I did this thing on the Sabbath and you thought, I don't think he's as good at us at the law. I don't, he can't be the king of righteousness because he's not righteous. Because we have a thousand rules to protect us from the Ten Commandments, right? Like we'll never do, what happened in the past is never going to happen again because we're the best spouse ever. I do all the laundry. I'm so good at it. The dishes, right? I make the bed like three times a day. I unmake it and remake it. I'm the best at marriage. And, God, and Jesus said, hey, you're too stiff. You're like whitewashed tombs. We're done. And he dies and raises again to a new covenant, aka the church, which he calls his bride. Right? But then you steer to the end of Revelation and what's going on? He's like, you've lost, you've left your first love, right? Like, come on, guys. You read the letters to the churches and it's like, here we go again. That's for us. That's the church. Now, you know why God hates divorce? He has two divorces. In the Bible, two divorces. He's tried for centuries to do it. Why do you think his one rule is faithlessness? Because that's him. Like he's, it's not he hates divorce, so if you get divorced, he's going to look down on you. He understands divorce. Divorce is his thing. You read the Bible and it's like, I shouldn't say it's his thing. Like he loves, he can't wait to divorce his people. <laughs> But when you have two divorces, that's rough, right? And God's like, I just want a love relationship. Now, you could say, potentially, um, okay, that works in the grand scheme, like you have a God and you have a big nation, and that's great. But what does that have to do with an individual? You'll see in Scripture that it says that God searches the hearts of people to find if people are loyal to him. And there's one particular heart I want to focus on. There are, multi there are lots of people that get this right in the Bible, but one that really gets it right. You know who I'm talking about? The man after God's own heart, right? The one who says, he says to Samuel, like, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart, and he chooses David. And David is the one who stands in front of all the people and says, like, I don't need a shield because this guy's defying God. God will defend himself. I guess I'll take a slingshot. You know, it's kind of like, dang, dude. And like this little kid, he's like, oh, there's a bear. Whatever, I got God. God's like, I can use that kid. And so they do all this stuff together. Like he essentially like finishes the conquest. What Joshua started, David finishes. He makes Jerusalem the capital city. He establishes uh, the nation basically as king of Israel. Uh, yet we know he gets bumpy toward the end, right? There's that whole Bathsheba incident and the pregnancy and trying to cover it up and end up putting Bathsheba's husband in a position that gets him killed. No bueno, right? It's all bad. But if you read Psalm 51, 
You spend time in there, you're like, oh. He says, if you wanted burnt offerings, I'd give you a burnt offering, but you want a contrite heart. He said, against you and you only have I sinned. He had the personal thing. He had the personal thing. Even when he messed up, he went the right way back. He understood. He didn't do a ritual to go back. He dealt with God. Um, At the very end of his story, he does this census where he's like, I did a pretty good job. Let's take a head count, you know? And then God's like, all right, that was bad. I'm going to give you one of three rules. You're going to either have three years of famine, three months of uh, attack from the outside. Your enemies will have victory over you for three months or three days of a plague. Which one do you pick? He said, I want to put my hands or my people in the hands of a gracious God, not of my graceless neighbors. So we're picking the plague. And God stops the plague early because David gets it. So what I want to do right now is I want to focus on four Psalms to get you into the mindset of David to check, am I doing these things? So let's start with Psalm 5, verse 3. And I want to talk about investment. He says, listen to my voice in the morning, Lord. Each morning I bring my request to you and wait expectantly. We saw this uh, in the sermon last week. Pastor Keith was talking about how Jesus would work all day and then early the next morning reset with prayer. We're doing that as a church right now. Just don't stop doing it. You know, imagine if I did my 21 days of talking to Lori. You know, I'd be like, awesome. Three solid weeks of my marriage. You know, no, no, this is life. This is for life, right? It's good to do those things. Like having a date night, it's not forcing it. No, it's, it's healthy. You can talk to your wife. Going on walks every night. That's kind of like what I'm talking about with God. You need to invest in the relationship. And by the way, you could sit down at the dinner table in front of a plate of food and not eat. When I say that, I mean, we can do our devotions every day and not be connecting with God. We have to think strategically about how to make sure the connection is there. You know, I could say, oh, my prayer time, and I have a list, and I just for an hour, and God's like, cool, I guess I'll get on that. That's the relationship. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying don't pray for people, but I'm saying think about it like you think about a person, not like this God that does things if I do that. You know, oh, there's a Bible verse and I'll just hold him to it. Yeah, watch out. Number two, uh, faithfulness. This is Psalm 101, two through four. I will lead a life of integrity in my home. I will refuse to look at anything vile and vulgar. I hate all who deal crookedly. I will have nothing to do with them. I will reject perverse ideas and stay away from every evil. Why do we expect God to be giving to us if we're not giving to him? So even if we're praying and studying, why do we expect revelation and insight and action if all the other times in my life, I'm just doing whatever with the world? You know? You could say, well, God forgives and forgets. Does he though? He does, but we just read the whole story. Like God's like, make the change, be the change. You know, like my my wife's very forgiving. But at some point, I don't have to be sleeping around to be neglectful, to be distracted, to be disconnected from my wife. That's all adultery at some level, right? God wants us. He wants our hearts. 
And so part of that is saying, oh, dang, I got to make sure I'm not living a double life, a double-minded man, unstable in all my ways. I don't, I can't do that to him. If I want him to be reciprocal, I need to be committed and faithful to him. Number three, trust. Psalm 3, one through three. Oh Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying God will never rescue him. But you, oh Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. This might, I mean, most of you would say, yeah, I trust God, of course. He's never failed me yet. Okay, but when you get in trouble, what's your first impulse? Mom, dad, best friend, we gotta go to coffee. Dude, I got this rich friend that maybe can bail me out. You know, like we get in trouble, Pastor Elijah, please pray for me. God listens to you. He's real quiet with me. You know, like, I got to get to the altar. When's the next service? I got to get out the altar because that's where God will do it. Dude, no. You got to, okay, I could go, I could do a whole next sermon on just this about trusting the Lord. I thought I trusted the Lord, but when it came down to it, I kind of trusted everything else and thanked God when it got fixed. Lip service right? It wasn't like, I'm not telling anyone and I'm going to fast and pray till this is solved by the Lord because I honor him with that. That's scary, by the way. It's happened a bunch of times and I'll tell you some stories another time. Number four, last one, Psalm 9, one through two. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all the marvelous things you've done. I will be filled with joy because of you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. You find this a lot in the Psalms, this idea of when you do stuff, I'm going to tell everybody. Not just to get everybody on my page, but, and not just to encourage people, but because God wants everybody. So when, when I say, like, this is what's, what the Lord did with me, now you all are thinking, hmm, what about me? And stuff can happen. We need to be talking about it. We need to remember what he's done. We need to be grateful. Now, I, I could go back through Lori's yearbooks and be like, oh, she was awesome at softball. She was so good at softball. Let's write a song about it. Lori's awesome at softball, you know? That's, sure. That's kind of what we do, though, sometimes. You know, like, I'll go through her journals when she's a kid. Oh, she's so nice. Look what she did with her grandma. Yeah, sure. What about last week? What about what she did today? You know, let's keep this attitude. Wait, I, I'm not going to say attitude of gratitude. Uh, let's keep a mindset where we're always thinking in terms of how great is she? Isn't that going to steer my marriage right if I have this mindset? And she's going to always be thinking, he loves me, doesn't he? Right? There's a lot of ways we can do that with the Lord. Okay. That's David. So you've got the nation, you've got the individual. Comes back to me, by the way, I wasn't like David in this. God told me I wasn't. And it was a problem because as I was going through college, God didn't resolve it for me. I wanted him to resolve it. And I was doing this David kind of stuff a little bit, trying, because I had to get over the hump. Because I was like, you know, I'm in chapel service and they're like, singing, I love you, Lord. I'm like, I love you. No, I don't. Because he told me I didn't. 
And I was getting bitter, actually. I was getting up to three years with no resolution. God didn't say anything again. I knew he could. He did. So why isn't he? Why won't he just like settle this? Because I can't just be a Christian with the, the shroud of you don't love me sitting over me all the time. I had to get out. And I got to this point where I read the verse, we love him because he first loved us. And that was my like exit door. That was my exit strategy from my dilemma was, God, you have to show me you love me. Because if you don't show me you love me, how am I supposed to love you back? Ha uh-huh, ha, the verse says so, <laughs> right? And so I was like, well, how do I know you love me? It, it kind of turned into that. Like three years is a long time, right? Like to like not be a Christian while being a Christian because God told me so. And all my friends were like, oh, he does love you, man. Don't worry about it, dude. I was like, yeah, if he didn't say anything, that'd be great. I believe you. Um, it got to the point where I was kind of in a crisis mode and I was praying one hour every day as a discipline, like this must end. And at the time I was dating Lori and one night I was in rehearsal and Lori, as a surprise, set out this nice, cool dinner. And by the way, I'm in college, right? I go to the the cafeteria all the time. So Lori, I come home to my dorm and she has these candles and like pasta and it's fancy. And I think you even dressed up a little bit. I'm not sure, but it was kind of like a moment. And, you know, the lights are down. This doesn't happen in college that much. And it was cool. And we were talking about what was going on in our lives. And she had an issue and I had my big issue that I couldn't deal with. And we're like, why don't we just go pray for a while and talk? And so we did. And we drove up this little mountain path behind the school. This was at Azusa Pacific down in LA. And we pulled up to this one spot and there was the city all down there. It was like a yeah, kind of the cool like date moment, but also we're going to pray because we're Christians. Uh, we're going to hold hands because that's what you do during prayer. And so we're doing it. We're praying. And there's this moment and God does the thing again. I'm telling you handful of times, this is number two. And I'm this three years after the event, three years. February is coming up. The anniversary, February 18th or 19th. It was like in the, we don't know what time, it was super late. Probably like two, so it was like, mm. uh, And this is what he says to me, but not with words. He says, remember that dinner table with the candles and the food and that whole romantic moment? He said, that's like her and your parents and all your friends at school and music, which I was studying. And this beautiful scene around you, nature, the moon, everything that you're looking at, It's table decorations. I'm trying to draw you to me across the table. Because one of these days, all that stuff's going to be in the dishwasher and in the trash and up in the cabinet. And it's going to be you and me. And, And he said to me, I'm romantic. That's a word I would not pick. I love Die Hard. I'm not Romeo. God says, I'm romantic. In that moment, Lori says out loud, in the silence, John, God is romantic. And he's telling her the same concept in the same moment, which for me, I need it, right? Like, because I know it's like, I I don't want to make this stuff up. And we felt it and we were shaking and we had this moment. I didn't sleep for three days. Uh, God let me feel it. And he's like, do you want to keep feeling it or do you want to keep living? Because that's what it felt like. It was intense. Um, I haven't talked about it much, really. Uh, Lori always wants me to talk about it, but it's like, "Mm." 
gets me. Um, but I wanted to challenge you all with it this morning because I think it's so easy, especially when you're younger, maybe, maybe forever, to, to fall, have a love relationship with your church, love relationship with church culture, love relationship with your devotional time and think that that's something real with God. It has to be real because he cares, you know? So I want to challenge you to invest in the relationship, be faithful in the relationship, to trust him first, and also to live with this grateful spirit to him as he works and lives in your life. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for that experience.